Welcome again to uh, St. John. We are glad to have you here. We're glad to have you also uh, watching online. In just a minute, we're going to uh, continue our series, This Not That, as we come to understand that what God wants for us is not just more information, not just teaching, but rather transformation. How many of you caught the message last week? Anybody? Formation, not protection. An important lesson, if you didn't hear these lessons, they are available on our website. You can go back and actually see the pastor do the teaching. And uh, last week, Pastor Garrett did an incredible teaching on this story of Jesus who was in a boat with his disciples and a storm broke out and he was sleeping and the disciples feared for their lives. The water started to come in and they said, don't you care that we perish? And after they woke Jesus up, uh, he said, why do you have such small faith? And then he calmed the storm. And from that teaching, I just thought it was incredible, uh, he pointed out that God wants us to understand that difficulties are essential in life because they are the means by which we form our character, deepen our faith. God doesn't always protect us from those, even though we pray all the time that he would uh, remove every difficulty from us. In his wisdom, he knows that is not best. Good teaching. Go back and listen to it if you didn't hear it last week. Now, the thing is, you have to take a teaching from here and apply it in life. And, and so uh, this past week, I had the opportunity to take my granddaughter, Cammie, uh, six years old, uh, out on the golf course. The first time that she'd ever been on a full-size golf course, and I wasn't sure how this was going to go. Uh, we were expecting nice weather. It turned out to be a little blustery, a little cool. She had her winter coat on, but uh, her folks and grandma had done a really good job of prepping her, so she was eager to go. And I thought, well, we'll do nine holes. We'll see how it goes. And uh, she rode in the cart, and then she would get out, and she would putt with me. I'd hit from the tee box, and I'd hit up on the green, and, and then she'd putt with me on the green. We'd take turns, and she actually handled it very, very well. So well that we did 18. Good job, Cammie. Now, now, at the end of the round, I said, now, you stay here in the cart because I need to put some things in my locker and uh, my shoes and, and some other things I had, an umbrella and things that I wanted to put in my locker and leave them there. And, and she said, but Papa, I want to go with you. And I said, sweetheart, I don't think that's a good idea. There might be naked men in the locker room. And um, Cammie said, why would there be naked men in there? And I said, because sometimes they take showers. And she thought for a minute, and she said, I'll stay here. <laughs> and so I texted her, uh, her dad, uh, what had happened. He's sitting right over here with his daughter now. And uh, Dion had said, you know, formation, not protection. Jake said, protection, not formation. You know, <laughs> so you don't have to literally take everything that we say. You have to apply it properly in your life uh, as we continue. Today we're talking about uh, transformation, not teaching, based on this incredible story from Matthew uh, chapter 19. I wonder how many of you remember these guys? Uh, on the screen behind me here. Uh, I think we all recognize President Reagan on the right. Who's the guy on the left? Tip O'Neill. Yeah, he was a character himself. Uh, I think the second longest uh, sitting congressman in the United States history uh, from Massachusetts. Uh, they were the yin and yang of politics because no one was more liberal and more Democrat than Tip O'Neill, you know, and no one was more conservative and more uh, Republican than Ronald Reagan. Uh, they were at extreme ends of the spectrum, and, and yet they had a good relationship, kind of a, a jovial uh, 
give and take among them, and they joked with each other. In fact, Ronald Reagan said, when I think of Tip O'Neill, I think of Pac-Man. Remember, I was back in the day. He said, because he's big, he's round, and he gobbles up money. And uh, he, he said, uh, another time, he said, I received a Valentine's Day card. He goes, but it was unsigned. He goes, but I knew immediately it was from Tip O'Neill because the heart was bleeding. That's what he said. So I told you all of that because of a famous quote that Tip O'Neill said. And you've heard the quote even if you don't know who that guy is. And for some of you, that would be ancient history. Uh, Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local. All politics is local. And uh, this comes from an incident that took place in his life when he was first beginning his political uh, uh, aspirations. In fact, he was running for nothing more than city council. And uh, he did a really good job of campaigning, except in his local district. And this was the only election that he ever lost in his entire life. And his father uh, uh, told him that he had made a mistake. And this is his reflection. This was the only race I ever lost in my life. But in the process, I learned two extremely valuable lessons. During the campaign, my father had left me to my own devices. But when it was all over, as dads sometimes do, (laughs) he pointed out that I'd taken my own neighborhood for granted. He was right. I'd received a tremendous vote in the other sections of the city, but I hadn't worked hard enough in my own backyard. Let me tell you something I learned years ago. He said, all politics is local. The reason I mention that is because all theology, all good Bible teaching is also local. We don't invite you here just to inform you, just to teach you more knowledge about Jesus, more knowledge about Old Testament Bible stories. It's important why these stories were written. In fact, we have a lot of seminary students who, who are assigned to us because one of our major seminaries is in town here. And uh, they sometimes will meet with me, and they want to know about preaching. How do you prepare a sermon? And, and uh, they are taught to read the text in the original language, translate the text, uh, exegete the text, understand the truth of the text, teach the truth of the text, and then get to application. And I say, you know, you can do all of that, and you still haven't properly prepared yourself until you ask this question. What human reason exists for that text even to be there. All good theology is local. It's a story of what God wants for you. What does God want for you in this story? It's so important that we understand that before we start thinking about the facts of the story going on. It's not enough that you know the facts of the story, the truth of the teaching. You must first understand the personal need that God is addressing in the text. Can't tell you how many years I taught eighth grade instruction here. You know, we'll have 100 kids each year. And, and uh, back in the day, uh, I was doing that teaching, and there were six chief parts of the Christian faith we teach. Uh, just for memory's sake, you could probably divide them in other ways, but we think there are six chief things that every Christian should know. And I would give them these tests, six tests. In fact, I would even use the test as a teaching device. I'd have them go back and make corrections. If it was a false statement, write it as a true statement. If it was a true statement and you got it wrong, just write it the way it is. Or choose the multiple question and, and write out the exact right answer. And if you did that, I would give you a, a, a better grade because I felt it was all about teaching. It was all about understanding. 
And every year I would graduate students who made A's in my class. Never see them again, you know, after confirmation. You see, it wasn't about how much they knew. Some of the brightest kids just did it like another subject, like math, you know, like science, like biology. That's not what God wants for you, not just more information, not just teaching. What God wants for you is transformation. I remember way back in the day when I began my uh, ministry, my very first sermon in uh, Alma, Michigan, small town north of Lansing, uh, I had the opportunity to write an article in the paper. It was a small town every week. And so prior to my teaching, I asked them, what text do you think I will choose uh, in that paper article? And they came with all kinds of speculation. But the text I chose was from John chapter 20. I think it's an important text for everybody uh, to consider why is this story in the Bible. The disciples saw Jesus also do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. In other words, John says, I'm not writing to you everything I know about Jesus. I know a lot more. But these are written. Why? So that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by continuing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, you will have life by the power of his name. I'm not just talking about eternal life. You'll have that, of course. But you'll also have the abundant life. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full now. It's not so much what God wants from you. It's what God wants for you. When we get it out of our head that religion is about expectations that God has of us, and we get it in our head that it's what God wants to do for us, and our faithfulness is not so much to please him, as it is to prosper our life and prosper the gospel on the earth, which also, by the way, happens to please him, then we'll have a better understanding. The Holy Spirit is selective. Not everything that happened in Jesus' life was written. These things are written so that you might believe. It's all about transformation. Somebody years ago uh, described it in this way with an equilateral triangle, uh, that it's not enough just to know the Bible says the devil knows and trembles. It's not just knowledge. It's knowledge and agreement with that knowledge. I know that. I believe it to be true. And then beyond I know it and I believe it to be true for you or for them or I know what happened in the Bible. No, I know it. I believe it to be true. And I trust it to be true in my life as well. You know, when you have those three components, then you have transformation. Well, let's get to our story today. It's, uh, it's an awesome story. It's one of my favorite stories uh, from Matthew chapter uh, 19. We're trying to get rid of the triangle. I can see that. Uh, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Interesting. Jesus asked him right away. So, why do you ask me what is good? What do you think about me? Why do you come to me? Who do you think I am? Jesus replied, there's only one that is really good. Are you thinking that I'm that guy? Are you thinking that I'm the son of God, Emmanuel, God with us? And then he goes on to answer. If you want to enter eternal life, what must you do to be saved? Then just keep all the commandments. The man was thinking, okay, maybe that's possible. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, 
You should not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have done. The young man said, what do I still lack? Interesting, you know, I've, I've done it. I've done it perfectly. And yet I instinctively know, I'm instinctively haunted by the fact that I am not perfect. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, and he gets right to the heart of the matter. You know, if you want to be perfect, then for you, what I would suggest, go and sell everything you have. Remember, he was a young, rich man. And give it all to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away very sad because he had great wealth. He was asking too much of the man. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is harder for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they began to uh, think about themselves a bit. All theology is local. If this is what you ask, then who could possibly qualify? Jesus looked at them and said, I think you're starting to understand. With you, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I'll say, okay, now, a little bit ago I said, uh, before you can even study a text, you must ask what human condition is God addressing in this story? Now, you just heard the story, and so I'm going to give you multiple choice, and you get to choose. What personal need is God addressing in the story? A, God wants all you rich people to give up your money. Hands? <laughs> no hands. Uh, God is reminding us to keep all of the commandments. C, God is warning us all about the dangers of money. D, all of these things, give up the money, keep all the commandments, be careful because money can get between you and God, or E, none of the above. How many think it's E? <laughs> You're smart. It is E. It's none of these things. You know, there were people in the Bible who were godly people who had much. And the Bible, I could show you, uh, says there's inequality in life so that those who have can help those who don't have and those who don't have can receive from those who do. It's an opportunity for the gospel to be shared and for faith to be witnessed. So it's not bad that some people have money. It is dangerous to have a lot of things. God is reminding us all to keep the commandments. In fact, he's reminding this man that despite what you think, it's impossible for you to keep the commandments. It could never be done. God is warning us about the dangers of money. Well, he is, but not only the dangers of money, as we will soon see. This is really a story about what God wants for you, not what God wants from you. It's a teaching about transformation, not more understanding. What must I do? It's interesting that in Mark's telling of this story, and, and I think it's key to the understanding of this story, uh, when the man first came and said, Master, what must I do to be saved? Mark says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and just sighed deeply and said, Man, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. 
And I think a lot of us don't get it. I think a lot of us say, you know, I'm here because I want to do better. I want to try harder. I want to be more religious. I want to be more righteous. You know, I want to be more like God. Even some of our songs sing that. But why? Why do you want to be those things? To please God? God has already made you perfectly pleasing. All of your sins have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, what sins remain? Did he die only for a few of your sins and you have to make up the, the slack? Or did he die for all of your sins? You know, Christianity is, is, is not about doing good. It's not about being good. It's not about attaining favor. It's living in response to the love and the favor that you have already received in Christ Jesus. Jesus looked at this man with love in his eyes saying, man, I wish I could unburden you. I wish I could help you understand that this is not true religion. This is what a lot of people believe religion is. This is why our churches are not full. I don't need somebody telling me what to do. And yet Jesus in a previous chapter said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will heap duty on you. No, he said, and I will give you rest. Take my teaching upon you and learn from me. You'll find that I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find that what I teach provides rest. For my yoke is easy, and the load I will give you will lighten your burden, not deepen it. Let's get to three of the points that he makes. The teaching, you can never be good enough. He drove that point home uh, strongly with this young man. But the transforming message is, but being good is good for you. You know, you get it. Yeah, God has expectations, but not to please him, but to rather have a better life. Here's the scripture that the young man had to deal with. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, if that's really how you want to be saved by your own activity, then be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's a bar too high. Nevertheless, there's good to be, uh, there's blessings uh, in goodness. There's blessings in obedience, as the scripture teaches in Philippians chapter 4. It says, fix your thoughts on what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is to be admired. Focus on these things. Meditate on these things, things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And so people say, this is what God wants for us. He wants us to be nothing but good people. He doesn't want it for his sake. He wants it for your sake. Put these things into practice, the things you have learned and received from me, everything you have heard from me and seen in me. Then you will discover the peace that surpasses understanding. Then you will discover that you are in a position to receive favor and blessing. Think of it as a parent. You know, if, if a child is off track, if a child is walking down a wrong path, what parent is going to encourage them in their own self-destruction? No good parent would do that. Instead, they'll try to uh, intercede They'll try to discipline. They'll try to put them in time out, make them think about the path they're walking, help them to see where that leads. But a child that's on the right path will receive nothing but affirmation and encouragement from a parent. And so it is with God. Being good is good for you, but not in order to find favor with God. The second point is riches are a threat to true faith. But the truth of the matter is, 
all Christians are rich. Jesus said to the man, a high standard, a high bar. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Uh, I was doing a study on this text recently with a men's group, and, and um, one of the guys said, well, that's why I'm glad I'm not rich. I said, you're driving a pretty nice car out there. You just bought me a cup of coffee. I happen to know you downsized and you paid cash for your home. You know, by this world standards, you are rich. In fact, everybody in this room who slept in a warm bed last night is rich. Everybody in this room that didn't have to worry about where they're going to get drinking water today, you are rich compared to the world. I think we've talked about that before, but that isn't even the point. It's not about riches. Maybe for you, it would not be money. Maybe that wouldn't be the thing that the Lord would ask you to live, leave behind. We are all blessed in certain ways. Psalm 103 says, Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never overlook the good things he has done for me. And he's done good things for all of us. He forgives our sins. He heals our diseases. And so if we have a disease that leads to death, remember last week when Pastor Garrett was up here and he said, you know, is that the worst thing that could happen to you as a Christian? Hasn't Jesus even made death his servant? You go from this life, this veil of tears, to a place where there is fullness of joy. Is that such an awful thing? He does redeem us from our disease. He redeems us from death and he crowns us with love and tender mercies. He fills our life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagle. For this man, it was his wealth. He was a wealthy young man. And Jesus was just trying to point out, you think you've kept all your commandments. You think you're good enough. You're not good enough. You're not perfect. And here's why you are not willing to sell everything. For Abraham, it was sacrifice your son, your only son, Abraham. It wasn't about money with Abraham. Abraham was a wealthy man, but he didn't challenge him to leave his money. He challenged him to leave his son. For Moses, it was fear. Moses, go down and face your fears. Moses, go down and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You know the guy you're afraid of, the reason that you are up here uh, hiding out from him in the first place. I want you to go back and face your fears. Will you do that for Moses? For me, Moses, or are your fears too great of a barrier for you to follow me? For Paul in the New Testament, the apostle, the Bible tells us in Galatians that he was succeeding in his profession faster than all of his peers. For Paul, it was, leave your success behind, Paul. Trust me. Follow me. So it's harder, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a successful person to get into heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for somebody who really loves their kids to get into heaven because your kids are going to get in your way. They're going to be your first priority. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for people who have fear because you can't leave your fear and trust in God. What the Lord is saying to his disciples is, you can't do this alone. In fact, they came to understand it. It was transformation, not teaching. It was what God wanted for that young man, what God wants for all of us, not what God wants from us. Not to part from our money, but to realize the danger of those things that keep you from the great things of God. 
The teaching is that God has set the bar too high for any to reach. Even the disciples understand that. But the transforming factor of this story is that God makes it possible for all of us to clear the bar. His disciples got it. They understood it. When they heard this, they were astonished and they asked, then who can be saved? Jesus said, man, you finally get it. I wish the young man had understood that. And maybe after chewing on it a while, he did come to understand it. We shouldn't give up on that guy. Remember Nicodemus had some questions for Jesus. And later the Bible said he became a believer. Paul says that some uh, plant, some water, some cultivate, and some harvest. We rarely plant anything and harvest it the same day. In fact, we never do. And so there was progress to be made for all of us and for these people as well, and even for the disciples. He was teaching them that uh, with you it is impossible, but with me it is always possible. The business is that uh, God does want us you know, to live a good life. And he makes it possible. He died for you so that you would receive this new life. Not in order to attain what must I do to be saved, but because you are saved and because you understand the value of living God's life. No longer to live for myself because this is the key to a full, rich life, a true life of riches. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. We are saved to serve. You know, it's all about motive. It's not in order to achieve something. It's because God has already provided all that we need. Again, it's transformation, not teaching. It's what God wants for us. It's not what God wants from us. This pyramid explains it well. We should know. We should study the Bible. I'm not encouraging you not to know, not to go deeper. We should all want to grow deeper. But we should also accept that that is not only true in those days, not only true for others in the world, but also true for us to begin to have trust in that. When we have the knowledge, when we have the agreement, when we have the trust, then in fact, we will discover transformation in our life. I pray that's why you come, to grow closer to the Lord, to understand all that he wants to do for you, all that he has done for you, and all the difference that it can make. He looked at you with love in his heart. I believe uh, St. Francis had it right uh, in this prayer that he prayed, and and it's a prayer that Christians also pray. Uh, Rather than just pray it and and have an exercise in reading, I want you to follow with me because he does certainly talk about expectations that are on him because of faith, expectations because God has saved him. But expectations that are properly understood that bring transformation, as you will see in the end. I'm going to read it first, and then I'm going to ask you to stand and pray it with me. Lord, so make me an instrument of your peace. Use me. Where there's hatred, let me be the guy who dispenses love. Where there's injury, let me bring pardon. Where there's doubt, let me be the person of faith in those circumstances. Where there's despair, Let me, because I know you, out of my abundance bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring a ray of light, of confidence, of knowing that we're not left to our own devices. And where there is sadness, let me be the guy, because I know who you are, and I know that every enemy of mine is defeated. Let me bring joy. Divine Master, grant that I may not so much be the the end, but the means. 
not so much seek to be consoled, but rather the guy who does the consoling. Not always to be understood to be the point of other people's concern, but to understand them. Not to be the one who wants love, but the one who gives love. It is in giving we receive. And then this is what he understands, the transformation factor of the prayer. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning others that we are pardoned. It is in dying to self and dying in life that we are born to true life and eternal life. Please rise and pray this prayer with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. I pray God's peace on you. I pray that you understand the value of surrendering uh, to the Lord.